the current events, the current events of this past week have offered us an unusual opportunity to take the measure of no less than three men on the world stage. How have you measured them? I give you their names. You've already, you've already measured them. I contemplated having you just speak out a word or two, but perhaps that would not fare well. But you think to yourself, how have you me measured these men who we have seen? Vladimir Putin. How do you measure him right now? In your own mind, what couple of words would you give to describe Vladimir Putin? Because you have measured him. What about Joe Biden? He spoke this past week. He spoke at, our, at the State of the Union address. And you either listened to some of it and took a measurement or refused to listen to any of it. That was your measurement. Get that? But you have a measure of him. And then what about Volodymyr Zelensky? What an impression he has made on the world. Has he not? Absolutely. See, whether you would agree with each other or not as far as how you have measured them, you've all, myself included, we have all taken a subjective measure of these guys. We probably don't have a great concept of who Putin is, particularly when we hear this morning yet again of young children who are dying because he decided he wanted to take Ukraine. And children die. And, and uh, one thing I heard this morning is uh, two little kids who are orphaned because of the bombing that he has done. Just today. So that will give you some sense. Joe Biden. You measured him on how you think his speech went. You measured him on whether you thought he was coherent, whether you agreed with his po policies, whether you thought he came across as a leader, whether he upgraded his, his perspective in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of America. And then with Volodymyr Zelensky, how do we not measure this man well? When he was asked earlier in this conflict, he was asked if he would like uh, transportation out of the country by America. And as I understand the report of his response was, the fight is here. I don't need a ride. I need ammo. Come help us fight. And then you see continually these videos that he's putting out from somewhere in a secure place. And here is a man who is standing with his people, with his army, and leading them from right there. And then we can contrast that with what happened just a number of months ago in Afghanistan. When it was clear things were not going well. And the president, what did he take? $141 million in cash or something? Just took off. Abandoned the country. So, okay, those, that's the distinct differences. And the world is holding Volodymyr Zelensky in great respect. But the point being, it all has happened based upon their own behaviors. We're watching what we're doing and we are measuring the man. Well, today, we're going to take a measure. 
But it's not a political measure that we take today. It will ultimately be a theological measure that we take. I hope you'll go along with us. Um, some of the stuff I know that we're involved in here, there, it, it, the, the text is so dense that to try and tease some of these things out of it, I find difficult so that it hopefully communicates well. But uh, we're going to try. I'm gonna, I have to start again with a very brief review. And I'm trying to make the reviews shorter and shorter as we go along because you've been through it. But first, way back, months and months ago, last summer I think it was, we came to Romans 1.16 in our study in Romans where it said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So he introduces to us, back in that early part of the book, he introduces to us the righteousness of God. He ties it to the question of faith. And then he effectively says, now hold on to that. Because <laughs> I'm going to go another direction for a short while here. Because Romans 1.18, that follows right after that, and you've heard this, and by the way, I'm repeating this stuff intentionally. I'm repeating this stuff to, to, to uh, imprint it in our thinking, in our minds, and in our hearts, so that sometime when you need to know where this is at, it's like, oh yeah, I remember that. It was right here in the study on Romans. So this is intentional. But Romans 1.18, he then continues, he goes off in, the, in a little bit of a different direction. For the wrath of God is revealed, as opposed to the righteousness. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And if you were with us, you know we got a good picture as to what that was. And from Romans 1.18 to 3.20, he talks about the behavior of those who suppress the truth. And what we find out was, you know, in that context, we all in one way or another suppress the truth. We all in one way or another fail in the area of God's righteousness. And what we concluded from that, because it's what it says, is everybody's got stuff. Everybody's got a problem with sin in their life. Not one of us can say we do not. The Scripture is very clear. And having gone through that, that section we titled, Everybody's Got Stuff, we then return to that thought in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, about God's righteousness. And in chapter 3, verse 21 now, we're moving into the, we've moved into the next major section, we read these six verses. And I'm going to read them again today. It's the third week in a row that we will have read them. I hope they're taking residence in your spirit. But now, the righteousness of God, left back there in Romans 1.17, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has Faith in Jesus. 
And from that phrase in verse 24, being justified freely by His grace, we have named this next section, God's got grace. First section, everybody's got stuff. Next section, God's got grace. And what we have seen already, because we've looked at verses 21 to the first part of verse 25, what we have seen already is that the righteousness of God is available to us. Last week, we did that word salad thing and we redefined a few of the, a few of the words that were in there in verses 23 and 24. Well, no, we didn't redefine them. We clarified their understanding. That was wrong word choice on my part. I apologize. And we threw this out. For all have missed the mark and are falling short of attaining to God's glory being declared righteous freely by His merciful kindness through the ransomed release that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a satisfactory means of forgiveness by His blood through faith. God makes righteousness available to us. We noted already this righteousness is not by the law. Verse 21 it's a without law righteousness of God. It's not by things that we do to make ourselves righteous. It's a righteousness that is through faith. And then we noted this observation from verses 23 and then on into 24. Everybody lacks righteousness. Well, there was nothing new there for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But also, everyone can access righteousness and we saw that in reading, for all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith. We're justified. We are declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. That's where we've been. And now we want to pick up those last couple of verses in our work through these six verses. We're going to pick it up right here. To demonstrate, see, what, when God makes this righteousness available through the satisfactory death of Christ on our behalf, notice what Paul then says. To demonstrate, second part of verse 25. By the way, I should say this. There's a couple of points in here where punctuation is really hard and breaking up verses for the, uh, for the people who you know, put in verse numbers was tricky. And it just kind of spills itself across in different places. But I trust you're going to get the meaning through what we're doing. Because that's important. We all understand the numbers, the chapters and verses are not inspired. Right? We get that. Okay. To demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is where we're going to spend our day today. And these verses take a theological measure. And what we'll see is God comes out as perfect. <clears throat> what we have noted as we have gone through these things, we've broken these six verses down to two major headings. The righteousness of God is available to us. Verses 21 into the earliest part of verse 25. And then what we have said is the righteousness of God is unassailable by us. When we measure who God is, we'll find out that He is perfect. 
And it's revealed, God's righteousness, these verses say, is revealed in two ways. And they're revealed in two different time frames. And so we'll see that. And this is where it gets a little, a little bit tricky to, to follow these things through. But again, we've resumed the thought from 117, God's righteousness revealed in the gospel. And here are the, here's the first of two ways in which His righteousness is revealed. His righteousness is revealed by His patience with our sin. The second part of verse 25. And here, if you could leave this up at this point then, would that be okay? To demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance, that's patience, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. The sins that were committed during the time of the development of the Old Testament and God revealing Himself to the Jews in the Old Testament. He had passed over these sins. Now, I would need a chalkboard and a lot of things to make all the connections here, but this idea of Him passing over brings us to the picture that Hebrews mentions of the hilasterion, the mercy seat, that place of atonement. It's a covering. And the day of atonement, the high priest went in to the Holy of Holies and he poured the blood of the sacrificial animal on the mercy seat. And God saw it as a, as a covering Get that? A covering. That he would, that's what atone means. It co he covered over that sin. Now get this picture all right, of that mercy seat. Get this picture of God He passed over literally. The word is that He passed alongside of. So for me, why that is so helpful is there are, there are the sins that, that need to be dealt with. And as God comes into the presence of those sins, now the atonement has been made. It's been covered. And He just keeps moving on by. He does not do anything more with those sins at that point. Now that was then. That was under the Old Testament. Under that Old Covenant. Now, Leave us not forget, and here's where it gets a little tricky, but last year I tied together the, that word hilasterion that it's both in Hebrews chapter 9 as the mercy seat and it is in Romans chapter 3 as the propitiation. Same word. It was that satisfying place. But last week we spoke of that He was the, um, the means of forgiveness. And what we think in terms of here, it was just a, a place of forgiveness or a place of atonement, but it still was satisfactory to God at that point that He could pass by those sins back then. He didn't forgive them yet. He didn't deal with them yet. At least not fully. Something still needs to happen, but they've been covered for now. And for that time frame, for what was then, it's okay. He was fine with that. We'll take care of that later. Now, here's, here's where God and His righteousness and the wonder of His being comes in. Because He could have, and He would have been just and righteous to do so, would He not? He could have, with every one of those sins, yours and mine, of course, we weren't there back then, but anybody who was living at the time, whose sins came under that, He could have just said, well, that's not what I'm worried about. You sinned, you're going to get yours right now. 
Right now, he could have judged sin. Right now, he could have judged sin. Right now, he could have judged sin. And right now, he'd have been just and righteous in every judgment he brought because they, likewise us, really have sinned and really are guilty before a holy God. He could have done that, but instead, because of the covering on that mercy seat, the Hilasterion, he was able to just pass by it for now. You getting me? So I want you to understand that there are two means of God's righteousness being, being, uh, being seen, being revealed. First, his patience, and that he didn't pass, that he didn't judge those sins committed then. I said there's two time frames. There's the then time frame of the of the old covenant, of the old system. And then there is the new time frame of the new system. Because he then goes on to say in verse 26, and then if we could leave that up, his righteousness is revealed in his punishment of our sin. Last time he covered over it, but now there is a punishment. Remember Christ who was the, um, uh, the ransomed one, paid a price of his blood, to demonstrate, verse 26, at the present time, Old Testament, mercy seat, Passover. New Testament, Christ's blood paid for at the present time. Now, something new is there. And it was the punishment of our sin then was dealt with. Not just covered over, but absolutely dealt with. Now friends, you've got to allow me for a moment. I mentioned to you a couple weeks ago that when I was a young boy, I came to faith in Jesus Christ and it was an Iwana program. And you've heard me say that many times through the years um, if you've been with us. And I told you, I said, I could, I could take you to the spot and I actually go back there when I'm in that church to just be mindful of that spot, which to me is sacred, where I sat on the floor while a leader from council time shared the gospel. And to this day, I remember thinking, I get it. That makes sense. I need Christ. And he led us in prayer. And at that point, I confessed Christ. And as I've told you, I went home and told my mom. I know the spot where that happened. I have three things in that church that I remember right where I was. And they have all impacted my life. The other one is where I was standing when Lori came down the aisle. And I can, to this day, remember thinking how magnificently beautiful she looked as she came this way. So I was up on a platform at that point. That was wonderful. But there's a third thing. There was a group of people who, when I first started to grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, my brother brought me back to that church, the same church I went to Awana, Quit going, though, for a number of years because the people who took me, I didn't see them after eighth grade. I didn't see that young boy, Tom Gensley. So my brother brings me back there five years later. What would it have been? And he had come to Christ, and he's all excited about what's going on. And there's this group of young people, college-age young people, with the pastor had determined to call them tent makers. They were the tent makers. He said, because Paul was a tent maker. He had both his regular job and he, he was a preacher of the gospel. And so the pastor called us tent makers, or called them tent makers. 
I didn't want anything to do with them. My brother invited me to go to church. He said there that uh, you know, he's trying to get me to come to this church. Finally, he said to me, he said, Gary, people will love you and accept you for who you are. I said, okay, I'll go. Because I know the church I was attending, nobody cared if I was there or not. And everybody needs to be loved and accepted for who they are. So I went. And he was right. These people, these young people in this group called Tent Makers were all, all glad to meet Tom's younger brother and we're glad you're here. And hey, we got this Bible study on Friday night. I'm like, I don't think so. I go out and have fun on Friday nights. I'm not going to be in a Bible study. But they kept loving and they kept inviting. And in time, I decided to, well, maybe I will go this Friday night. And I was hooked. Because there was love in that place and people were studying the Word of God and it was an amazing time. Eventually, I became the leader of that group for a season. And it was during those years that I sensed God's call on my life that maybe I need to be in ministry rather than become a medical doctor as I thought I'd be heading. So I knew nothing. You need to understand this. We would get into the Word. We'd get into the Scriptures. We were clueless. That's what you need to know. Absolutely clueless. And we're going through the book of Romans and we're all excited and we don't know what we're talking about. And I didn't understand anything about what was going on here and I couldn't have explained then what I can explain to you now. It was crazy, the ignorance that we had. But God was at work. And I can take you to the place. I can take you to the room where I was sitting, leading leading the Bible study, you understand. I'm supposed to be the guy that knows something. I'm leading the Bible study and I come across that phrase that says that He may be just and the justifier of them who believe in Jesus. And the lights went on. And I came to understand something for the first time. That just by being in the Word and God reveals it to you and the magnificence and the wonder of that moment. And it is my favorite verse in all of Scripture. Because of that moment when the lights went on, I had to share that with you. Thank you for being patient with me. But here's what I realized on the spot right there. That He may His righteousness, right, in the present time now is being revealed that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. See, God must deal with sin in order to be just. He can't just overlook it. Now, you may recall, you may recall last week that uh, I demonstrated for you, because the word is so visual, I demonstrated for you uh, by being able to shoot at a target and that I made the target because you can't miss the target in here. Okay, now some of you maybe are going to want me to redo that demonstration. I'm kind of busy in the weeks ahead, but if you need somebody who can hit a target, all right, I think Eric could do it as well. All right, he could probably hit it as well as I hit it. So anyways, when I talked to Stovey the night before about the possibility of doing this, because I thought if it goes awry, I've got to be able to sink the chairman with me, um, he just started laughing. Why are you laughing? Why are you laughing? Because he had his own story. All right? Now, understand the definition of sin in that context is to miss the mark. And I said, Stovey, would you share that story? And now he's here to share a story. Yeah, so it, it, uh, it really did make me chuckle as the two of us were kind of visiting about it. So, yeah, so we might as well start out. Uh, my dad thought it would be a good time to teach me how to do a bow and arrow as well. Um, 
Eric, my path just wasn't quite the same. <laughs> uh, so my dad took me out and uh, we had a very basic recurve bow and, and an arrow with just kind of a flat end on it. Didn't have a, a broad head. And so we took some time and he showed me how to launch arrows into a straw bale. And he's like, okay, so if you want to learn how to do this, this is the place where you practice. Okay, we'll fast forward a little bit. So I was getting pretty proud that I had this nice little bow and arrow, and my parents were gone. We'll start there. My parents are gone. Trouble already. <laughs> All right. So uh, I decided to show off to my siblings in the house. <laughs> so in my mind, I thought this would be a good idea. I can kind of show off to my, to my two sisters and my brother, and... I'm just going to gently launch the arrow into the couch so that it doesn't hurt anything. And then they can all say how great I am. Uh, so I go and get my bow and arrow and I talk them into this. And thankfully I missed the couch, but the arrow goes kathunk into the wall. <laughs> and so I had to go and pull my arrow out of the sheetrock. <laughs> and we all kind of went, uh-oh. Uh, this went very wrong. Um, so we started thinking about, which was a rare moment in my household, that the four of us decided what we were going to try to do to cover this up. Normally they were very quick to tattle on me. Um, so we tried some paper and that didn't work. We tried some toothpaste to cover up the hole in the wall and that kind of stuck in there, but it, it still started running. So then we took some tape and covered that up. And uh, then we waited and my parents knew when they walked in the house and all four of us were sitting on the couch silently that something was wrong. They didn't even see the hole in the wall, but they got it out of us. <laughs> and needless to say, it was a long time before I got my bow and arrow back. <laughs> so he missed the mark. Now, the point of having him share that was not to, re, to redefine the, the definition of sin in terms of missing the mark. It was to realize, and all of you would agree, his parents had to do something. They cannot let little Stovey shoot, go shooting his bow and arrow in the house, hitting things randomly, and destroying things, or maybe hurting people, so he didn't get his bow back for quite a while. They had to bring a judgment on that. And you would all agree, yes, to be a good parent, you have to do that. Well, that's how God is with sin. God, being just, must, must deal with the question of our sin. There must be a penalty that comes because of our sin. Or else He is not just. If He just always just walks by the sin, just walks by, well, why do you even need a covering for it? Because who cares? Just go ahead and do what you want and He's not going to do a thing. We would not say God is just if that's the case. But there's something else that needs to happen. God, because He is love, must reach out to us to draw us to Himself. That's who He is. God is love, First John tells us. God so loved the world, John tells us. 
So what we wind up with, what you understand there, he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. His justice says he's got to push us away because of the penalty of sin. You know how he drove Adam and Eve out of the garden? The day you eat thereof, you shall die. And there was a spiritual death that took place, a separation between Adam and Eve and God because they ate the fruit. That has to happen. His justice requires that. And yet His love requires He pulls us to Himself. How is He going to do that? Because He's got to push us away. So what I'd, like to, what, I, what I'd like us to understand there is that His justice, God's justice and love were in dynamic conflict with one another. Two opposite things that needed to be in place. So in order to understand, i got to... Four illustrations, because I'm hoping you'll get what I'm going for. As far as what I mean by there was a dynamic conflict between His justice and love. While listening to the President on Tuesday night, I heard him interact with the problem of rising gas prices. And uh, the way he consoled me about rising gas prices was I could solve the problem of buying expensive gas just by getting an electric vehicle. It'll save me $80 a month on gas. I wish I only spent 80 bucks a month on gas. But I could solve that problem. And back at the point where I'm screaming at the TV again, I can't afford an electric car. You want me to go out and buy a $40,000, $50,000 car in order to save money on fuel that you've caused the prices to go up on? There's a, there is a dynamic conflict there. I cannot beat the gas prices because I cannot afford the cost of an electric vehicle. Forgetting about whether they're good for up here or not. I just can't afford it. Dynamic conflict. Oh, here, we can solve the high gas prices. Get an electric car. <laughs> can't afford it. Doesn't work. I was in uh, with one of the businesses locally yesterday. And they were just kind of chuckling. They'd only caught a small part of his speech. And they were like, yeah, here's what, here's what we heard him say. He said, uh, in order to beat inflation, so people can deal with inflation, business owners, you've got to raise your wages. And while you're at it, lower your costs. You know one of the greatest costs that a business owner has are wages. There's a dynamic conflict. It doesn't make sense to tell them to raise their wages and at the same time lower their costs. Early on, before Putin had entered into uh, Ukraine, there was this crazy, and I, I'm not, I didn't go looking for the quote, but effectively came down to John Kerry. You might pick up the impression I don't have a lot of respect for him, so I'm sorry. Uh, but John Kerry, who was had made a comment that as, as Russia, as Putin pushes into Ukraine, he's really hoping that um, Putin will understand that this is going to have a great, I think, be a lot of carbon released because of this fighting that's going on, and that he'll keep, he'll keep this green concept in mind while he goes to war. What? You're, going, you're, telling, you're telling America that you think that Putin might be open to this discussion about waging war but keeping his green principles in mind? I'm sorry, you go to war, you go to war. You're not worrying about the carbon footprint that you leave. That's a dynamic conflict. I couldn't believe that he had said it. It was so outrageous. You getting the idea of a dynamic 
conflict. Two things that pull one against the other. I'm going to pass on the last one. But what I would like us to understand, friends, is God had this dynamic conflict. His justice said He must deal with sin. His love says He must draw us to Himself and be in relationship with us. These things that don't go together at all. And yet, and here's the wonder of our God. He solved the dynamic conflict. Justice and love are both played out at the cross. Whom He has just mentioned is the place of propitiation, right? We are, we've been there. I don't want to go back there again. But His justice and His love are both played out there. His justice in that the penalty for sin was paid and His love in that He could offer to us forgiveness, the righteousness by faith that's found in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ's sacrifice was satisfying. It fulfilled the need. His justice and love were both met at the cross. That is phenomenal, friends. And I want us to not leave here without knowing these couple of things. Second, each was manifested completely. His justice was fully met. His love was fully expressed. Each of them. And here's the thing we need to caution ourselves against in understanding this as you wrestle with it. His justice and love did not meet in the middle as a compromise. Justice gave a little, love gave a little, and somehow they found this medium point between them. God's attributes don't work that way. Who God is, is who God is fully. And every one of His attributes are always fully at work. And the point being that His justice was fully met by what Christ did on the cross. And His love was fully expressed by what Christ did on the cross. And it was not a little bit of each. It was not a hybrid of them. So, where does that leave us as we wrap up? A couple of thoughts. We always need to keep God's justice and love in perfect tension. They are both at work all the time. And He has demonstrated them both and satisfied them both at the cross. But just remember, we've got to keep this tension in our thinking. You know, sometimes, sometimes I, I see people where, uh, you know, uh, talking with somebody one time, and I had mentioned how you know God is God. I've, I just God has been so gracious in my own life because of He saved me from myself and my sin. And and this person's response to me immediately was, "God is just." Immediately, God is just, and He'll not be made a fool. Wow, I don't argue that God is just. I'm not trying to di to diminish God's justice at all. But that's all you see is God is just. And you're missing that God is also love. And you're missing how magnificent the cross is in bringing the two of those things together. So, we must keep them in tension. The second thing is I want to speak to anybody who is here. Anybody who might be listening online. 
I want to say it very clearly that God can forgive the worst of our sins. That's what that satisfaction was. The mercy seat that allowed God to cover, that allowed God to cover the sins while He walked by them during that time, during that time frame, has now become the death of Jesus Christ in which it allows Him to pay the penalty for them so they are taken care of now. The penalty has been paid. The justice has been met. So if you ever find yourself saying, I don't think God can forgive me, I'm telling you that's a lie from the pit of hell. God is able to forgive the worst of our sins because of Christ who became the mercy seat, the place of forgiveness. That's the second thing. And I think something is important for us to understand as we move through life, and I, I, I find that it, it helps for me. Will it help for you? God can resolve other dynamic conflicts. Other dynamic conflicts. Here's what I mean by that. We read in Romans 8.29. We'll get there later. All things work together for good to those who love God are called according to His purpose. Are you telling me that... My sister-in-law stricken, stricken with a brain cancer a couple of years ago and we lost her. You're telling me that God is able to work that out for good and the answer is yes. He is able to do something good with that. Are you telling me that somehow God is able to do something good with those lives of these two kids orphaned this morning in war? Can God do something with that? And the answer is yes. He can. Any dynamic conflict, God is able to enter into it and manage both sides of it so there's an effective end to it. I'm not saying that there isn't real pain in it and that there isn't real tragedy in it. I'm not saying that. I don't want you to take me lightly on that. I want you to understand who our God is. That He is able in His justice to deal with my sin and in His love to reach out to me. And those don't go together. But He did it. So I know he can do it. This, he can solve this dynamic conflict in other areas. So when our life plans are not fulfilled, when financially or personally or relationally things go south, we're not even sure if God loves us anymore. We're not even sure if I can trust Him. We're not even sure if I should turn to Him because I'm so angry with what has happened. The answer is yes, we can trust Him. He is able to make this work out okay. He is able to handle this difficulty and I do not need to turn on Him and abandon Him because He didn't do things the way that I wanted. So I said at the outset of this message that today we are going to take a theological measurement, not a political measurement, <coughs> excuse me, but a theological measurement. And what we find is as God's righteousness is being revealed, it is unassailable. There's nobody who is going to, at some point, and I know I've said this to you before, but there's nobody at any point in time or in history or when we stand before God in judgment, we stand before God in glory, there's nobody going to wag their finger, wag their finger in the eye of God and say, you did me wrong. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. God's righteousness is being worked out in all things. And although we maybe can't see it right now, 
He is accomplishing His righteous ends. And we can trust Him for that. We can put our faith in Him completely because He is so incredible. We sang earlier about it. You're a good, good Father. That's who you are. That's who He really is. And we can trust Him even when it does not make sense. Because He has proven Himself at the cross to be able to take this dynamic conflict that seems insurmountable that you or I would never have resolved. He was able to take it and say, no, here is a peaceful answer to that. You can trust me in all things. I have demonstrated my love for you. When you're the guilty one, when you're the one in needing of forgiveness, I demonstrated it for you at the cross when Christ paid for your sin. And we're the ones who perhaps have suffered an injustice. And how did God let that happen? And what's He going to do with those people? We can trust that the sin that's been perpetrated against us will also be dealt with completely. It will also be resolved by God. So friends, what I am hoping, what I'm hoping you will see in all of this, whether or not you could follow all the detailed thought that I know I gave, what I'm hoping you will come away with is this one singular thing. Our God is incredible. And we can trust Him. Father, thank You for revealing Your own righteousness at the cross of Christ. Thank You, Father, for how You dealt justly and You dealt lovingly this dynamic conflict was resolved so magnificently because Christ bore the burden of our sin so that we could be brought back with you and, and his, the payment of his, of his blood on our behalf was satisfactory. It was an adequate means to pay the penalty of our own sin, Lord. And you sent him. It was your love for God so loved the world, you tell us. It was your love. Oh, Lord, I pray that we leave here today with a new and more highly exalted view of who you are than we have ever had before. Transform us with that thinking, I ask in Jesus' name.